Okay, we're listening to the Supreme Court. Is it reaction? Well, sometimes the same holds true in law. So the MAGA Republican Supreme Court justices, the MAGA Republican Federalist Society members who just achieved the elimination of college admissions and university admissions, factoring in diversity into their admissions process, may be in for a reawakening. On Monday, one civil rights group filed uh, a complaint before the Office of Civil Rights, a uh, complaint regarding legacy admissions practices at universities like Harvard, which are not merit-based at all, and which allow individuals to get into universities simply because of their last name or because of their connections. MAGA Republicans are claiming everything needs to be merit-based, merit, merit this, merit that, but when you actually look underneath the hood, that's not what they are doing in practice, because they have been supportive of legacy admissions. They have been supportive of exams and other practices which really don't measure how smart an individual is or how much merit someone has, but what it really measures is how much resources somebody has to be trained or taught to do a specific exam. I'm going to get into the complaint that was just filed by this uh, civil rights organization, but also the NAACP, in addition to the civil rights group, they've backed the efforts of this group, but they've also been pushing to an end to legacy admissions and other pernicious practices at colleges and universities, which do not favor merit-based systems. So the one thing I want to talk about is, is, you know, this case, Students versus Fair Admissions versus Harvard, and there was a companion case, Students versus Fair Admissions versus North Carolina, the way it's generally described as it eliminated affirmative action. And the way I like to talk about it here on the Midas Touch Network is I don't really use the term affirmative action because affirmative action, how most people think about it, really never has existed. Because, sure, when most people use it colloquially, oh, affirmative action, they believe it means, well, it means that a minority candidate gets into a school over a non-minority candidate. Or it means that certain points are given to a minority candidate in their application to give them a step above other candidates. That's not okay, actually. That's not what the law is. I mean, I, I personally believe that it, it could be all right, but the Supreme Court has outlawed that. Oh, thanks. Digestion. Is it also for digestion? Okay. Yeah. 
the main thing is you have to drink uh, what about lime? one ounce for every uh, pound of body weight, uh, half, half your body weight. Damn, it feels super fucking dangerous. 104. Yeah, you too. I need a fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> I should get some mixers. I should get some mixers like in. Uh, you know, I'm turning like the north side to kind of like an outdoor living room at the base of a mountain. <laughs> and uh, shaded, I'm putting up like sunscreen things and also uh, keep it cool, cool it down. Having misters would really help, I think. Cool it down. Some, some uh, you know, it must be pretty tough for my chickens. So sorry for them. Fucking hot. Hot, hot AF. Mr. Drop the Wood. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. Awesome. Yeah, go take those and put them in your cart. I will. Okay, and I'll keep one. Okay. Hi, Miss Virginia Go. How are you? Hi. 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 Very hot. Do you want some water? No, I don't know. Yeah, but I'm going to leave this door open. Hey. Oh, it's a nice cool breeze coming out of there. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah, that's nice. It's almost like being in my car. Huh. You weigh 150, you gotta 
consume 75 ounces of water. That's quite a bit. How much do you weigh? Yeah, they're pretty mean. They can be. Uh, they pulled over. They pulled over Anthony for absolutely no reason. <coughs> and uh, he's a white boy. He looks white, even though he's half Cuban. So, <laughs> but he looks white. So if they're pulling over white boys, you know, for no reason. They pull over people. And the, they're doing it to everybody. Well, they have a quota. They have a quota for giving people um, tickets and bringing people to jail because we have a for-profit prison industry. That's most the problem. We need to dismantle that. Apple, all the tech lot, that we need to do. They all talked about how critical diversity is at colleges for everybody. The American Medical Association said it will save lives. <laughs> Groups representing each other, you know. is on the planet. She don't need no Instagram. She just uses Shannon Graham. She don't need no Instagram. She just uses <coughs> Tristagram. Oh, 
just a brain. <laughs> that's a that's a good name for some kind of communication network. Just a brain. <laughs> legacy admissions. What does it mean? The legacy of colleges is that uh, black and brown and other groups of people were banned and prohibited from going to history. Okay. And so if you're basing it on legacy, that's not race neutral in and of itself. Here's the article by the Associated Press uh, okay. talking about activists spurred by affirmative action ruling challenge legacy admissions at Harvard. A civil rights group is challenging legacy admissions at Harvard University, saying the practices discriminates against students of color by giving it a Yep. And then William Tolera. Are you getting what's his name? Yes. Okay. Um, Anthony Nunez? Yes. They're That's right. They're mostly white children of alumni. The practice of giving priority to the children of alumni has faced growing pushback in the wake of last week's Supreme Court decision ending affirmative action in higher education. The NAACP added its weight behind the effort on Monday, asking more than 1,500 colleges and universities to even the playing field and end legacy admission. 
Americans. The civil rights complaint was filed Monday by Lawyers for Civil Rights, a nonprofit-based Boston group on behalf of black and Latino community groups in New England, alleging that Harvard's admission system violates the Civil Rights Act. Quote, why are we, reward, why are we rewarding children for privileges and advantages accrued by prior generations, said Ivan Espinoza Madrigal, the group's executive director. Your family's last name and the size of your bank account are not a measure of merit and should have no bearing on the college admissions process. Opponents say the practice is no longer defensible without affirmative action providing a counterbalance. The court's ruling says colleges must ignore the race of applicants, activists point out, but schools can still give a boost to children of alumni and donors. The complaint submitted with the Education Department's Office for Civil Rights draws on Harvard data, Harvard data that came to light amid the affirmative action case that landed before the Supreme Court. The records reveal that 70% of Harvard's donor-related and legacy applicants are white, and being a legacy student makes an applicant roughly six times six times more likely to be admitted. Other colleges have these same practices. The complaint alleges that Harvard's legacy preference has nothing to do with merit and takes away slots from qualified students of color. It asks the U.S. Education Department to declare the practice illegal and force Harvard to abandon it as long as the university receives federal funding. A spot given to a legacy or donor-related applicant is a spot that becomes unavailable to an applicant who meets the admissions criteria based purely on his or her own merit. If legacy and donor preferences were removed, the complaint adds, more students of color would be admitted to Harvard. Um, and the NAACP also launched a campaign aiming to get universities across the nation to promote campus diversity by calling on 532 public and 1,134 private colleges and universities to end legacy preferences, eliminate racially biased entrance examinations, recruit diverse faculty, and support low-income and first-generation students with scholarship and mentoring, among other steps. Quote, it is our hope that our nation's institutions will stand with us in embracing diversity no matter what, said Derek Johnson, president and CEO of the NAACP. And regardless, the NAACP will continue to advocate, litigate, and mobilize to ensure that every black American has access to resources and opportunities they to thrive. And look, I know the term affirmative action is used in this article and is frequently used. The reason that I describe it though slightly different is I understand a, a discussion, a debate that could be had is, you know, what do you think about quota systems? What do you think about um, what do you think about a point-based system where certain applicants get more points than others, a quota system that has certain numbers of applicants? I, 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 I will at least get that there could be a debate. Let me just say that. However, the idea that diversity should be a factor in the way colleges handle their admissions, the fact that colleges want to promote diversity, me, no matter what side of the quota debate you are on, we all should believe that diversity is a good thing. 
is an important thing, will help our economy, will help colleges, will benefit everybody who goes to the university, who goes to the college, that will be a net plus no matter what. And for the Supreme Court to say, well, no, it's uh, we strictly care about merit-based, but then have this flagrant hypocrisy that exists, well, as I mentioned, every action in nature, there is an equal and opposite reaction, and here we are now seeing that the Supreme Court may have undermined some of the very systems it was trying to uh, protect, some pernicious systems it was trying to protect. Imagine if colleges and universities say, we don't care about the SATs anymore, we don't care about the ACTs anymore, we don't care about um, you know people who have 4.12 GPAs from private schools. We don't care about legacy admissions. We just want to hear essays about the the quality and character of candidates. What if that becomes the outcome here? And you get great students. I bet you you're going to see the you know right wing Federalist Society MAGA Republicans just flip out on that. So we'll keep following what's happening here, but. Uh, an, an interesting response to what I think is a bad Supreme Court uh, decision. I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch What's Network. Hit subscribe. Here? We're on our way to 1.5 million subscribers. Thanks to your support. Check us out at patreon.com slash Midas Touch. Wherever you get audio podcasts, subscribe to the Midas what? Most Americans agree with. Most American corporations agree with. Apple, all the big tech companies, the American Medical Association, they all talked about how critical diversity is at colleges for everybody. The American Medical Association said it will save lives. You will literally kill people if you take away diversity in the college admissions process since um, it is vital to have people serving the communities that they come from corporation said it's going to make America anti-competitive in the economy, but six right-wing Supreme Court justices were like, whatever, screw it, we don't care, and they overturned the precedent, which was affirmed as recently as 2016, so I would call it super precedent, precedent on top of precedent, but look, ultimately, if the and, and, and here's the thing that the right-wing justices say, um, they go, we need an entirely merit-based system, it's all based on merit, 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 and so if you factor in in diversity that's not Pretty race neutral have, uh, and that's like not this. based on merit that's the logic that they try to give but ultimately it's based yeah, on a not. logical fallacy no, since not. legacy admissions has permitted people who do not have the merit to get into schools to get into schools. So what civil rights groups are saying is, well, we could have lived with legacy admissions provided diversity could be a factor. In many ways, it kind of evens out. But now, based on what you're saying, Supreme Court, legacy admissions should be a violation of your own new uh, decision because in legacy admissions is not race neutral. You are picking out people who have a legacy at the university and by its very nature legacy admissions what does it mean? The legacy of colleges is that uh, black and brown and other groups of people were banned and prohibited from going to college for a lot of our history. And so, if you're basing it on legacy, that's not race neutral in and of itself. Here's the article by the Associated Press uh, talking about uh, this uh, law, this uh, complaint that was filed. Activists spurred by affirmative action ruling challenged legacy admissions at Harvard. 
a civil rights group is challenging legacy admissions at Harvard University, saying the practices discriminates against students of color by giving an unfair boost to the mostly white children of alumni. The practice of giving priority to the children of alumni has faced growing pushback in the wake of last week's Supreme Court decision ending affirmative action in higher education. The NAACP added its weight behind the effort on Monday, asking more than 1,500 colleges and universities to even the playing field and end legacy admissions. The civil rights complaint was filed Monday by Lawyers for Civil Rights, a nonprofit-based Boston group on behalf of black and Latino community groups in New England, alleging that Harvard's admission system violates the Civil Rights Act. Quote, why are we reward why are we rewarding children for privileges and advantages accrued by prior generations, said Ivan Espinoza Madrigal, the group's executive director. Your family's last name and the size of your bank account are not a measure of merit and should have no bearing on the college admission process. Opponents say the practice is no longer defensible without affirmative action providing a counterbalance. The court's ruling says colleges must ignore the race of applicants, activists point out, but schools can still give a boost to children of alumni and donors. The complaint submitted with the Education Department's Office for Civil Rights draws on Harvard data Harvard data that came to light amid the affirmative action case that landed before the Supreme Court. The records reveal that 70% of Harvard's donor-related and legacy applicants are white, and being a legacy student makes an applicant roughly six times, six times more likely to be admitted. Other colleges have these same practices. The complaint alleges that Harvard's legacy preference has nothing to do with merit and takes away slots from qualified students of color. It asks the U.S. Education Department to declare the practice illegal and force Harvard to abandon it as long as the university receives federal funding. A spot given to a legacy or donor-related applicant is a spot that becomes unavailable to an applicant who meets the admissions criteria based purely on his or her own merit. If legacy and donor preferences were removed, the complaint has more students of color would be admitted to Harvard, um, and the NAACP also launched a campaign aiming to get universities across the nation to promote campus diversity by calling on 532 public and 1,134 private colleges and universities to end legacy preferences, eliminate racially biased interest, interest examinations, recruit diverse yeah. faculty, and support low-income and first-generation students with scholarship and mentoring, among other steps. Quote, it is our hope that our nation's institutions will stand with us in embracing diversity no matter what, said Derek Johnson, president and CEO of the NAACP. And regardless, the NAACP will continue to advocate, litigate, and mobilize to ensure that every black American has access to resources and opportunities they need to thrive. And look, I know the term affirmative action is used in this article and is frequently used. The reason that I describe it though slightly different is I understand a, a discussion, a debate that could be had is, you know, what do you think about quota systems? What do you think about, um, what do you think about a point-based system where 
certain applicants get more points than others, a quota system that has certain numbers of applicants. I, 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 I will at least get that there could be a debate. Let me just say that. However, the idea that diversity should be a factor in the way colleges handle their admissions. The fact that colleges want to promote diversity, to me, no matter what side of the quota debate you are on, we all should believe that diversity is a good thing, is an important thing, will help our economy, will help colleges, will benefit everybody who goes to the university who goes to the college that will be a net plus no matter what. And for the Supreme Court to say, well, no, it's uh, we strictly care about merit-based, but then have this flagrant hypocrisy that exists, well, as I mentioned, every action in nature, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And here we are now seeing that the Supreme Court may have undermined some of the very systems some good, uh, that was trying to uh, protect, some pernicious systems that was trying to protect. Imagine if colleges and universities say, we don't care about the SATs anymore, we don't care about the ACTs anymore, we don't care about um, you know people who have 4.12 GPAs from private schools, we don't care about legacy admissions. We just want to hear <laughs> essays about the the quality and character of candidates. What if that becomes the outcome yeah, here? Wonderful. And you get great students. I bet you you're going to see the you know right-wing Federalist Society, MAGA Republicans, just flip out on that. So we'll keep following what's happening here. But uh, an, an interesting response Everything to in moderation. what I think is a bad Supreme Court uh, decision. I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch Network. Hit subscribe. We're on our way to 1.5 million subscribers. Thanks to your support. Check us out at patreon.com slash Midas Touch. Wherever you get audio podcasts, subscribe to the Midas Touch podcast. Have an excellent day. Hey, Midas Mighty. Love this report? We continue the conversation by following us on Instagram, at Midas Touch. Keep up with the most important news of the day. What are you waiting for? Follow us now. I get you because that's sugar. Sugar. Hmm. That's some asparagus. You like vegetables? Fuzzy blackberries.
Oh, those are awesome. Yeah, I love those. Nice. Mm. Love those ships. Is that butter? Are they buttered or something? Hmm. Those look like um, garlic buns. Sure, I'll take those. We don't want them. Breaking news. Suarez and even Doug Burgum, but Donald Trump, he's not. Most walked in July 4th parades, but not the former president. He's giving more evidence he's running a very different kind of campaign. And no labels says they want to give voters a third-party alternative, but some critics wonder if what they really want is to, not, to deny Joe Biden the presidency. I'm Dana Bash. Let's go behind the headlines and inside politics. We start today with that old saying, honesty so, is the best policy. At first blush, that might seem like what an operative for the Ron DeSantis Super PAC is doing, stating the obvious, that things in the DeSantis campaign are not going so well. Listen to Steve Cortez and his unsettling assessment of how his candidate is doing. Yeah. Look, right now in national polling, mm -hmm. uh, we are way behind. I'll be the and, first to admit that, okay? I believe in being really and blunt and really honest. It's, a, it's an uphill battle. Like I don't think it's an avoidable battle by any stretch, okay? But clearly, Donald Trump like is, the, is the runaway times. front runner. Huh. For everything so why would like Cortez do this? A source familiar espionage. with his intentions tells me it's all about lighting a fire under the struggling campaign. The super PAC can't legally coordinate with the campaign. Going public? That's kosher. More on that in a minute, uh, but let's first get right to the campaign trail. We start in Merrimack, New Hampshire, where CNN's Omar Jimenez is. So, Omar, how's it going on the campaign trail? I, I actually am very jealous that you're in New Hampshire on July 4th. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it's going to be a festive atmosphere. And what's more American than campaigning for president on the 4th of July? So I feel like this is the place to be. And it's what we're going to see over the course of today in Merrimack, New Hampshire. The the parade's getting ready to get started behind me here, where we're going to see Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who actually already marched in it's a 4th of July parade a little bit north of here in New We've Hampshire, greeting people, talking to some prospective but voters as well. Again, that on-the-ground presence that a lot of these candidates 
hope for on days like this, but when this one gets going, we're also going to be seeing South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, former Texas Congressman Will Hurd, and all of them are essentially trying to gain ground on who has been the polled frontrunner to this point and former President Donald Trump. And I know you played some of the sound of the spokesman for the DeSantis Super PAC, along with that answer as well, he said part of that reasoning that Trump has gotten so far ahead is that people are coalescing or seem to be coalescing around the former president given the legal troubles he's found himself in. And even after the most recent indictment down in Florida over President Trump's alleged mishandling of classified documents, I came here to New Hampshire and talked to some of his supporters to see if that indictment changed their minds in any way, if anything, it emboldens them. And that is the climate that a lot of these candidates are trying to break or at least make some sort of progress into. And I think that is why we are seeing their efforts here on the ground. Someone like Ron DeSantis, he, of course, has been pulling second, way ahead of all the other candidates, but still has been pulling double digits behind the former president. And we'll see if that road to at least some sort of parity can begin here on the 4th of July. Omar, thank you so much for that reporting. Have fun out there. And here to share their reporting, CNN's Jeremy Diamond, CNN's Alina Treen, and Tia Mitchell of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Happy fourth. Uh, you got the red memo. Yes. You've got the blue behind you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's go back to these comments by Steve Cortez. You remember him from the I, from Trump I, world. Uh, he, he worked for Donald Trump in 2016 and 2020. Now he is a uh, an operative inside the Ron DeSantis super PAC. He made some waves by going public uh, saying several things, but one of them was that Ron DeSantis is not doing so well. So the question is, why did he do this? Uh, I have some new reporting, and it's the following, that he made these public remarks to try to instill a sense of urgency among DeSantis' campaign staffers, whom Super PAC is not legally supposed to coordinate with. In the same vein, he tried to go out of his way to respect and compliment the Trump base because he believes strategically DeSantis needs Trump converts to win. You cover the Trump campaign. You talk to uh, Trump supporters on the campaign trail. Do you think that this kind of of messaging to try to get the DeSantis campaign basically to be kinder to Trump supporters will lure any of them to Ron DeSantis? I think it's a bit of a far-fetched bet, to be honest. Um, But I understand what Steve Cortez is doing. And I actually... I think a lot of people appreciate the candidness that he's using and, you know, the stark honesty that he used in that Twitter Spaces event. But it's very different from, obviously, what Donald Trump and his campaign has always done. I mean, remember, in 2015, when he was first running Donald Trump, he was still behind, at this point, Jeb Bush in the polls, who was starting to catch up. But he was always projecting confidence. He was always saying, we are going to win. You know, we're here to win this different from what I think Steve Cortez is doing and also different from what many of Ron DeSantis's other campaign advisors have been doing, which is projecting all out confidence and kind of the Trump, you know, rhetoric that he's going to continue to win. So I do find this very interesting, but I do think Steve Cortez was speaking truthfully and acknowledging reality, which is that 
even though Ron DeSantis is the second, if you look at polls, second behind Donald Trump, he has a long way to go to catch up. And so I find that strategy in your reporting very interesting, but I'm not sure, at least with Trump supporters, that it will work. And, and as you come in, because you have a, a lot of uh, knowledge about and background about this, I just want our viewers to see what we mean by Ron DeSantis not doing well. If you go back to February, uh, he was 28 percent uh, behind Donald Trump, 43 percent. Since then, Trump has only increased his share of support, according to uh, polls, and this is according to a, a Fox News poll. And Ron DeSantis, I mean, you could say hold steady-ish, but certainly has gone down. This is all so within the within the margin of error. It was all mid what like two indictments. Uh, yeah. there, there has been no like quote unquote uh, net positive news for the former president. Obviously, we know that the indictments can play well with with the Trump base sometimes. But overall, Donald Trump has not had a state of good news over the last couple months, and yet that is where he stands. Um, to me, the Steve Cortez comments reminded me of those fundraising emails that we get, right? Where it's like, we're not doing well. Please help, right? And, and obviously, he. Uh, with a super PAC, he's trying to raise money. That, to me, is his target audience with those comments, is the donor class who are going to see this and say, oh my gosh, if we don't want Donald Trump to be our nominee, Ron DeSantis may not be doing well, but he's still second. So what can we do to bring him up? And, and that would be to donate more money to the super PAC. I don't know. I guess the cynic in me wonders if this was a cry for help, but to Donald Trump, you know, like, hmm, not for Donald Trump to help Ron DeSantis, but I just feel like a Twitter spaces is not a private donor event. Like, it's very public. He had to know people were going to be listening. And his comments weren't really helpful to Ron DeSantis, I don't feel like. He wasn't necessarily defending DeSantis as much as he was explaining how much Donald Trump is running away with the field. And to me, again, the cynic in me just wonders if this was him just trying to kind of send a message to Donald Trump, like, yeah, I'm working against you, but I still love you, guy. I still think you're great. Um, you know, because I, this, to me, if you're the Ron DeSantis campaign, you can't be happy with how he frames the campaign at this juncture. So you're thinking that's like three-dimensional chess. My impression is more like two-dimensional chess because he's just trying to send up a flare to the campaign that he can't talk to, like guys do better. And this seems to be part of the message that the super PAC, at least he wants the campaign to lean into. Listen to this. They're just captivated. They might know Ron DeSantis COVID, Ron DeSantis Disney, you know, something like that. His name ID has risen a lot, and we know that from our testing and our metrics. But they know very little really about him or about his personal life story or what he's done in Florida. I'm of the belief that once we really get his story out there, and thankfully we have the resources to do that, he's campaigning with a just frenetic pace already. So I think once we get that out there, my view is that we're going to, to close this gap. I'm of the firm view that it is a two-man race. So, hey, DeSantis' campaign, define him, because what have we seen so far? We've seen the Trump super PAC and Trump allies defining DeSantis for DeSantis, which is never what you want. You never want to be defined by your opponent. Right, no, you don't. Um, and I do think what he's also saying about the brand image around Ron DeSantis, I know just from even talking to uh, some of DeSantis' advisors, is that's something that they really want to lean in into this image that he's a family man, unlike Donald Trump, who, uh, you know, one of his worst qualities is his rhetoric that he uses. That's something that many voters have been turned off by. Ron DeSantis is trying to use that and lean into it, showing, you know, appearing everywhere with his family, with his wife, uh, Casey DeSantis, and also trying to draw contrast with Donald Trump. And so I think that 
I understand, like you said, I, I agree with you, Dana, that I think that he's trying to give this message to the campaign, which you can't talk to, saying this is what we're seeing. And I know that a lot of what the PAC's been doing has been frustrated by some moves that uh, the campaign has been doing, and so this is his way of getting his message out there. And, and just to sort of underscore the point that you were making earlier, uh, Jeremy, I want to just show uh, uh, some examples of headlines. Uh, around and about Ron DeSantis back in December. DeSantis holds early lead uh, over Trump among GOP primary voters. Do not, uh, goes down to the New York Times opinion uh, piece, do not cross Ron DeSantis. Fast forward to recently, Newsweek, Ron DeSantis campaign in deep trouble. The Guardian, DeSantis stalling campaign, how to lose friends and alienate people, and National Review, the conservative outlet. Ron DeSantis is picking some strange battles. Yeah, and I mean, look, that frustration is, is natural, right, among supporters when you have hopes for a candidate and you don't see them rising as quickly as you would like to. But it does beg the question of what is it exactly that can actually shake up this race, right? Um, what is it that's going to remove Donald Trump's hold on, on the Republican primary base and on this uh, primary race as a whole? And it's hard to see what that is, absent the possibility of Ron DeSantis really going after Trump directly. I think that was one of the big mistakes that Republican candidates made in 2016 was going after the guy, the second guy, or, you know, trying to appeal to his supporters without actually going after the man. We'll see. I mean, we haven't yet seen the evidence that that strategy is successful yeah. for Chris Christie, for example, but, you know, remains to be seen. It does. All right. Everybody stand by. By the way, on the note of defining him and uh, giving more of his bio, Casey DeSantis, who a lot of people think is the secret weapon, certainly a very big influence politically uh, in the governor's life. She's going to go to Iowa next week, so that'll be interesting to watch. Maybe it's the end of this week. Soon. July 4th means fireworks, parades, and if you're running for president, campaigning. Many of the GOP hopefuls are pounding the pavement and key early voting states today, but not all of them. CNN's Kyung Law is in Iowa with former Vice President Mike Pence. Wow, look at you. You're actually on the parade route. And you can see the former Vice President Dana is walking right behind me. He's walking here. We've actually seen him burst into a jog going back and forth trying to shake people's hands. This is Iowa summer campaigning at, at, at unfolding right behind us. What the campaign is hoping to do is for the former Vice President to win Iowa Republicans one handshake at a time. He is joined here by his wife, Karen Pence, and this has been a two-mile walk. It is very hot out here, but you can see the smile on the candidate's face, and he is shaking hands, holding babies, and he is doing something that the former president is not doing. Former uh, President Donald Trump, not here in Iowa. And what the Pence campaign hopes is to show that this is going to be a different sort of presidency if Iowa does support him. And they believe by going through 99 counties and shaking hands one by one, that they'll be able to do it. Dana? Okay, Kyung, that is definitely one of the coolest live shots I've ever seen. <laughs> Fantastic reporting. And tell the, tell the former VP and that former second lady we said, hey, if he wants to come back on, if you want to pull him on, uh, you know, you let us know and we'll get you back on. Uh, he, he appears to be quite busy right now, yes, shaking as many hands as possible. He does. Dana, this is a strategy. This is how the Pence campaign believes that they'll be in the game. Very, very Iowa. Uh, Kyung, thank you so much.
And today, as you just uh, heard from Kyung, Donald Trump is not on the campaign trail. He's going to be missing from the debate stage next month, we think. We're not sure. Well, we're some seven weeks away about to, to learn about who will be on that debate stage, and it is an open question. One obstacle is that the RNC says candidates will need to meet donation requirements to qualify, and that's prompted some to employ new fundraising tactics, sending letters to supporters and saying it's up to them and their wallets if they want to see the candidate on the debate stage. My panel is back to discuss. That was a cool live shot, wasn't it? Was. it? <laughs> we all, very nostalgic. We all have, very, we all have live shot envy. Um, so we, we talked about who's on the campaign. Well, we talked about Mike Pence on the campaign trail. Let me just also show uh, who else is on there. Uh, Francis Suarez, the uh, mayor of Miami. He's also in Iowa, in New Hampshire. Ron DeSantis, uh, as we heard from Omar earlier, Tim Scott, Will Hurd, and Doug Burgum. Uh, but I just want to dive into the, uh, the debate. The debate, the debate, the debate, debate, and what the RNC is requiring, because I think this bears repeating. In order to get on the debate stage for August 23rd in Wisconsin, you must reach at least 1% in three approved polls, get funding from 40,000 unique donors with at least 200 from 20 plus states, sign a loyalty pledge to support the eventual nominee. Um, let's just start with the the uh, polls and the money. We saw some of the fundraising appeals. On the polls, what is really interesting is that you don't necessarily have as many polls out there that qualify. Uh, and what they what the RNC says is that the survey, the poll, must have at least 800 registered likely Republican voters in a mix of live and integrated voice response calls. So that rules out a lot of polls that we use here, and it rules in very specific Republican-leaning, uh, right-leaning polls. It does. And I think there's a key strategy here, which the RNC is really getting at, which is they want to weed out the candidates that they do not think have a serious shot at becoming the nominee. And I think it'll be really interesting to see who can make it to the debate speech, because even though we know that Donald Trump is saying he may not show up for that debate, um, we'll see about the other candidates. Uh, it's really their, these candidates shot at showing America who they are, showing their debate skills and, and you know the rhetoric that they use. And for a lot of more of the lower brand name, uh, name ID candidates, this is a good thing for them to really show America you know, where they're standing. And even if Donald Trump isn't there, at least even without him, it's anything because of him not being there, they'll have a better shot at doing that. Yeah, but the risk is that the debates turn out to be, you know, sort of lame. Like if you don't have Donald Trump, and then now we're starting to hear that Ron DeSantis might say, well, if Donald Trump's not going to be on the stage, what's the point of me being the target guy on the stage? You know, like if it's if it's all these kind of lower tier candidates, then what will be the benefit if you don't, especially without Donald Trump, even if it is a Ron DeSantis, what will be the benefit if you're not debating the person who is the front runner and in, in right now, even according to Ron DeSantis' campaign, a good shot to be the nominee. Listen to the most recent thing that Donald Trump said about whether or not he would actually be on the debate stage. Justin, you may skip the early Republican primary debates, the first being August in Milwaukee. You still in that mindset? I, I like the debate. I mean, I probably am here because of debates. I don't mind it at all. But when you're 40 points up, 
and you're running against it. Yourself. 51 points up. Why would I let these people take shots at me? So you have that, and then you have the Chris Christie's of the world. Trying to get into his mind, a mind that Christie has known for, for two decades. They used to be good friends, and he was obviously a supporter. Uh, here's what he said to Maureen Dowd. He said, I don't think Trump Trump's ever gone up against somebody who knows how to do what he does. He's never run against someone from New Jersey who understands what the New York thing is and what he's all about. He knows I know what his game is. Yeah, and, and I think Donald Trump had the point when he said, well, why would I let these candidates come and, and take a shot at me? I mean, Trump skipped one, maybe two debates back in the 2016 Republican primary, and he wasn't penalized for it by voters. Uh, and, and beyond that, he's now in an incredibly strong position in the Republican yeah. primary, as we were talking about vis-a-vis DeSantis and every other candidate in the field. So he really doesn't have a lot to gain. He has a lot to potentially lose. And vice versa, Chris Christie has a lot to gain yeah. by being on that stage, and that's why he's trying to get on. Yeah, and, and he keeps saying, again, trying to pull him on the stage, whether he's there or not, I'm going to go after him. So he might as well be on the stage. Okay, then there's all the other candidates hey. and the question of the pledge. Well, it's also a question for Donald Trump, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, well see the irony he does. It's about Trump. It's about Trump. I know, it is. It is. It's actually very true. Uh, the other question is those whether or not they will sign also, a pledge, which the RNC not, is requiring, to support whomever the nominee is. Listen to the way many of the other candidates who are not Trump have answered that question. Let me just paraphrase. That's everybody trying to get around the idea that they're going to probably sign this pledge to get on the debate stage, even though they don't really want to support Donald Trump. There's an exception to that, and that is Will Hurd, who's the most recent entrant into the, into the race. He told me on Sunday, I'm not going to do it. I'm going work towards to hitting all the, the, the requirements, but I can't lie to get access to a microphone. I'm not going to support uh, Donald Trump. I recognize the impact it has on, on, on you know, my ability to get access to the debate stage, but I, I can't lie. It'll be easy to say, I'll do it, and then when it comes out, it'll change your mind. But I just can't do that. I've already got some. I mean, it's a very principled approach, but that means more than likely Will Hurd won't be on the debate stage, and that's just another kind of uh, bullet point as to why he's going to be considered a lower tier candidate. He's not polling, you know, anywhere near the top tier. He's, he's struggling to create that anti-Trump lane, and now he won't be on the debate stage. And I think it's, I think he's trying to create a lane of the principled approach of never Trump, but in today's Republican primary, where is that going to lead? That lane is an exit ramp. Right, and I do think, too, I mean, with the other candidates who are sending mixed messages, being unclear about whether they will sign this, I agree with you, Dana, that I think that they'll ultimately do it because they know they need to get on that stage. Just like Jeremy was saying, it, it's a game for them to be on that stage. And even if Donald Trump is saying, I'm not going to sign it, it's not as much uh, you know, a mark against him if he's not up there. All right, everybody stand by because ahead, President Biden, he is back at the White House on this July 4th. Is there room for a third-party candidate on the 2024 ticket on the ballot? No labels think so. The nonprofit group is considering backing a moderate independent candidate whom they say would represent their values of bipartisanship and centrism. They think Americans want an alternative to frontrunners Donald Trump and Joe Biden. But strategists from both parties warn no labels 
could be handing the election to Donald Trump. My panel is back with me. Uh, this is such a fascinating discussion that's going on all around Washington in small uh, in small meetings and big meetings. We'll talk about that in a second. But let's just look at the, the headlines that we've seen recently from multiple uh, news organizations talking about the reporting of the concerns that strategists have, particularly on the Democratic side, about the notion of this group, No Labels, which is a centrist group, running a candidate for president. Yeah, and the reason why Democrats are concerned about this group is because uh, both Joe Biden and Donald Trump have high negatives, right? They both have high numbers of people who think that they have an unfavorable view of them. And Democrats, what they have going for them is that they believe that Donald Trump is slightly more unpopular and that those people who just can't stomach to vote for Trump again will hold their nose and vote for Joe Biden. But if a third party candidate presents themselves as an option here, uh, that takes away what is effectively uh, Democrat insurance policy here in an election against Trump. And, and that is ultimately the concern, and that's why you're seeing some of these Democratic strategists starting to take this seriously. And they say they've already qualified for the ballot in Arizona, Alaska, Colorado, Oregon, Utah. Uh, Arizona Democrats are suing to try to get them off the ballot. That's how concerned they are. Right. I mean, I think this is a huge threat that Democrats see. And uh, we know, I don't know if you were going to be sharing soon, but um, a bunch of former Biden administration officials, former senators, uh, the Lincoln Project, all got together and met about this behind closed doors. People like former White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain, Cedric Richmond, who's now at the DNC, um, Stephanie Cutter, former Obama administration official. And I think them just meeting on this shows how much of a threat they see a potential third party candidate and what it could be to President Biden. No question. They very much do. On Sunday, Larry Hogan, the former governor of Maryland, was on State of the Union. And He's one of the names that is being floated as a potential candidate for that third party run. Well, let listen to what he said and then what Karen Finney, Democratic strategist, who was also at that meeting, said directly to him. It's not something that I'm considering or pursuing at all, but I, I totally understand the frustrations that lead to uh, this kind of discussion. Uh, at this point in our country, 70% of the people in America do not want Joe Biden or Donald Trump to be president. And if they're going to be the nominees, which it appears that they are, you know, you, you have choice A that no one wants and choice B that no one wants. Do you want to be choice B? I may have to be choice C. No labels is going to have the, the effect of electing Donald Trump again. Uh, yeah, I think it's interesting because at the end of the day, we have to talk about the math. And no number one, no there have been third party and multiple party candidates on the ballots. It's always the Republican or a Democrat in modern history who's been elected president in America. So when you talk about third party candidates, they usually benefit either the Republican or the Democrat. You know, we saw Ross Perot being a spoiler on the other side. Um, so think about 70% of Americans might say, I don't like no, Trump or Biden, and, uh, but that doesn't mean that 70% won't vote for what? either Trump or Biden if it no comes down to a general election. 
and those are the two candidates on the ballot. It would be very hard. No labels. I think also just logistically, they don't talk about who their donors are. They're not public. They don't have a candidate. So they're running this no labels campaign without a name attached so people really know what this is. And that's one of the many questions and concerns that a lot of people who are working on these campaigns, particularly on the, the Democratic side, on the Biden side, are saying, like, who's really funding this? Is it somebody who is more on the Republican side trying to stir up trouble for Joe Biden to take votes away from him if he's running against Donald Trump? But I just want to go back to the point that Larry Hogan was making, which is that uh, poll show that many Americans, most Americans, are not super excited about the front runners on both sides of the aisle. Joe Biden, unfavorables, 56%. Donald Trump's unfavorables. 59%. Yeah, and, and like I was saying before, those unfavorables are the reason why Democrats are concerned. They're also the reason why people are clamoring for a third-party candidate, right? Mm -hmm. So those two dynamics are kind of colliding. Um, but I think if you look back at some other elections, including uh, Obama-Romney, I mean, the, the, there were also a lot of dissatisfied Democrats who didn't want Obama to run at this at this point in the, in the campaign. So this is historically something that American politics deals with. It's why so many people are frustrated with our two-party system. Um, but I think the reality is that unless you have a third-party candidate with huge, huge name ID, like the most famous person that you can think of in America who has high favorability ratings, there is no way in which it doesn't hurt Joe Biden more than Donald Trump. Yeah, and we should note that... No, they keep talking about, like, uh, oh, we should n never have a third party. How about a fourth party? And that would even it up. But that's kind of how Hitler came into power. He, uh, he narrowly got the majority out of, like, four groups. This recording is brought to you by Ancient History Encyclopedia and the YouTube channel... The Study of Antiquity and the Middle Ages. Enuma Elish. The Babylonian Epic of Creation. Full text. Written by Joshua J. Mark. Narrated by D.W. Gough. The Enuma Elish also known as the Seven Tablets of Creation, is the Mesopotamian creation myth whose title is derived from the opening lines of the piece, When on High. All of the tablets containing the myth, found at Ashur, Kish, Ashur Banapal's library at Nineveh, Sultan Tepe, and other excavated sites, date to circa 1200 BCE but their colophons indicate that these are all copies of a much older version of the myth, dating from long before the fall of Sumer, circa 1750 BCE. As Marduk, the champion of the young gods in their war against Tiamat, is of Babylonian origin, the Sumerian Ea Enki, or Enlil, is thought to have played the major role in the original version of the story. The copy found at Ashur has the god Ashur in the main role, as was the custom of the cities of Mesopotamia. The god of each city was always considered the best and most powerful. Marduk, the god of Babylon, only figures as prominently as he does in the story 
because most of the copies found are from Babylonian scribes. Even so, Ea does still play an important part in the Babylonian version of the Enuma Elish by creating human beings. Summary of the story. The story, one of the oldest, if not the oldest, in the world, concerns the birth of the gods and the creation of the universe and human beings. In the beginning, there was only undifferentiated water swirling in chaos. Out of this swirl, the water is divided into sweet, fresh water, known as the god Apsu, and salty, bitter water, the goddess Tiamat. Once differentiated, the union of these two entities gave birth to the younger gods. These young gods, however, were extremely loud, troubling the sleep of Apsu at night and distracting him from his work by day. Upon the advice of his vizier, Mumu, Apsu decides to kill the younger gods. Tiamat, hearing of their plan, warns her eldest son Enki, sometimes Ea, and he puts Apsu to sleep and kills him. From Apsu's remains, Enki creates his home. Tiamat, once the supporter of the younger gods, now is enraged that they have killed her mate. She consults with the god Kungu, who advises her to make war on the younger gods. Tiamat rewards Kungu with the Tablets of Destiny, which legitimize the rule of a god and control the fates, and he wears them proudly as a breastplate. With Kungu as her champion, Tiamat summons the forces of chaos and creates eleven horrible monsters to destroy her children. Ea, Enki, and the younger gods fight against Tiamat futilely until from among them emerges the champion Marduk, who swears he will defeat Tiamat. Marduk defeats Kuingu and kills Tiamat by shooting her with an arrow which splits her in two. From her eyes flow the waters of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Out of Tiamat's corpse, Marduk creates the heavens and the earth. He appoints gods to various duties and binds Tiamat's eleven creatures to his feet as trophies, to much adulation from the other gods, before setting their images in his new home. He also takes the Tablets of Destiny from Kuingu, thus legitimizing his reign. After the gods have finished praising him for his great victory and the art of his creation, Marduk consults with the god Ea, the god of wisdom, and decides to create human beings from the remains of whichever of the gods instigated Tiamat to war. Thwingu is charged as guilty and killed, and from his blood, Ea creates Lugu, the first man, to be a helper to the gods in their eternal task of maintaining order and keeping chaos at bay. As the poem phrases it, Ea created mankind, on whom he imposed the service of the gods, and set the gods free. Following this, Marduk arranged the organization of the netherworld, and distributed the gods to their appointed stations. The poem ends in Tablet 7, with long praise of Marduk for his accomplishment. Commentary the Enuma Elish would later be the inspiration for the Hebrew scribes, 
who created the text now known as the Biblical Book of Genesis. Prior to the 19th century CE, the Bible was considered the oldest book in the world, and its narratives were thought to be completely original. In the mid-19th century CE, however, European museums, as well as academic and religious institutions, sponsored excavations in Mesopotamia to find physical evidence for historical corroboration of the stories in the Bible. These excavations found quite the opposite, however, in that once cuneiform was translated, it was understood that a number of biblical narratives were Mesopotamian in origin. Famous stories such as the fall of man and the great flood were originally conceived and written down in Sumer, translated and modified later in Babylon, and reworked by the Assyrians before they were used by the Hebrew scribes for the versions which appear in the Bible. Although the basic paradigm of the biblical narratives and the Mesopotamian stories align closely, there are still significant differences, as noted by scholar Stephen Bertman. Both Genesis and Enuma Elish are religious texts which detail and celebrate cultural origins. Genesis describes the origin and founding of the Jewish people under the guidance of the Lord. Enuma Elish recounts the origin and founding of Babylon under the leadership of the god Marduk. Contained in each work is a story of how the cosmos and man were created. Each work begins by describing the watery chaos and primeval darkness that once filled the universe. Then light is created to replace the darkness. Afterward, the heavens are made, and in them heavenly bodies are placed. Finally, man is created. These similarities notwithstanding, the two accounts are more different than alike. In revising the Mesopotamian creation story for their own ends, the Hebrew scribes tightened the narrative and the focus, but retained the concept of the all-powerful deity who brings order from chaos. Marduk, in the Enuma Elish, establishes the recognizable order of the world, just as God does in the Genesis tale. And human beings are expected to recognize this great gift and honor the deity through service. In Mesopotamia, in fact, it was thought that humans were co-workers with the gods to maintain the gift of creation and keep the forces of chaos at bay. The Enuma Elish in Babylon. Barduk gained prominence in Babylon during the reign of Hammurabi, 1792-1750 BCE, and superseded the popular goddess Inanna in worship. During Hammurabi's reign, in fact, a number of previously popular female deities were replaced by male gods. The Enuma Elish, praising Marduk as the most powerful of all the gods, therefore became increasingly popular as the god himself rose in prominence and his city of Babylon grew in power. Scholar Jeremy Black writes, The rise of the cult of Marduk is closely connected with the political rise of Babylon from city-state to the capital of an empire. From the Kassite period, 
Marduk became more and more important until it was possible for the author of the Babylonian Epic of Creation to maintain that not only was Marduk king of all the gods, but that many of the latter were no more than aspects of his persona. The Enuma Elish was read and recited widely throughout Mesopotamia, but was especially important at the New Year festival in Babylon. During this festival, the statue of Marduk would be taken from the temple and, amidst the revelers, was paraded through the streets of the city, out the gates, to vacation in a small house built for this purpose. The Enuma Elish, especially, it is thought, the praise from Tablet 7, would be sung or chanted during this procession. The text of Enuma Elish. The following translation comes from Mesopotamian Creation Stories by W.G. Lambert and is used under Creative Commons license from the Etana website. Enuma Elish, the Babylonian Epic of Creation. Tablet 1. When the heavens above did not exist, and earth beneath had not come into being, there was Apsu, the first in order, their begetter, and Demiurge Tiamat, who gave birth to them all. They had mingled their waters together, before Meadowland had coalesced and reedbed was to be found, when not one of the gods had been formed, or had come into being, when no destinies had been decreed. The gods were created within them. Lahmu and Lahamu were formed and came into being. While they grew and increased in stature, Anshar and Kishar, who excelled them, were created. They prolonged their days, they multiplied their years. Anu, their son, could rival his father's. Anu, the son, equaled Anshar. And Anu begat Nudimud, his own equal. Nudimud was the champion among his fathers, profoundly discerning, wise, of robust strength, very much stronger than his father's begetter, Anshar. He had no rival among the gods, his brothers. The divine brothers came together. Their clamor got loud, throwing Tiamat into a turmoil. They jarred the nerves of Tiamat, and by their dancing they spread alarm in Anduruna. They conferred about the gods, their sons. Apsu opened his mouth and addressed Tiamat. Their behavior has become displeasing to me, and I cannot rest in the daytime or sleep at night. I will destroy and break up their way of life, that silence may reign and we may sleep. When Tiamat heard this, she raged 
wept and cried out to her spouse. She cried in distress, fuming within herself. She grieved over the plotted evil. How can we destroy what we have given birth to? Though their behavior causes distress, let us tighten discipline graciously. Mumu spoke up with counsel for Apsu, as from a rebellious vizier was the counsel of his Mumu. Destroy, my father, that lawless way of life, that you may rest in the daytime and sleep by night. Apsu was pleased with him. His face beamed, because he had plotted evil against the gods, his sons. Mumu put his arms around Apsu's neck. He sat on his knees, kissing him. What they plotted in their gathering was reported to the gods, their sons. The gods heard it and were frantic. They were overcome with silence and sat quietly. Eya, who excels in knowledge, the skilled and learned, Eya, who knows everything, perceived their tricks. He fashioned it and made it to be all-embracing. He executed it skillfully as supreme, his pure incantation. He recited it and set it on the waters. He poured sleep upon him as he was slumbering deeply. He put Apsu to slumber as he poured out sleep. And Mumu, the counselor, was breathless with agitation. He split Apsu's sinews, ripped off his crown, carried away his aura, and put it on himself. He bound Apsu and killed him. Mumu he confined and handled roughly. He set his dwelling upon Apsu and laid hold on Mumu, keeping the nose rope in his hand. After Ea had bound and slain his enemies, had achieved victory over his foes, he rested quietly in his chamber. He called it Apsu, whose shrines he appointed. Then he founded his living quarters within it, and Ea and Damkina, his wife, sat in splendor. In the chamber of the destinies, the room of the archetypes, the wisest of the wise, the sage of the gods, Baal, was conceived. In Apsu was Marduk born. In pure Apsu was Marduk born. Ea, his father, begat him. Damkina, his mother, bore him. He sucked the breasts of goddesses. A nurse reared him and filled him with terror. His figure was well-developed. The glance of his eyes was dazzling. His growth was manly. He was mighty from the beginning. Anu, his father's begetter, saw him. He exulted and smiled, his heart filled with joy. Anu rendered him perfect. His divinity was remarkable, and he became very lofty, excelling them in his attributes, his members were incomprehensibly wonderful, incapable of being grasped with the mind, hard even to look on. Four were his eyes, four his ears. Flame shot forth as he moved his lips. His four ears grew large, and his eyes likewise took in everything. His figure was lofty and superior in comparison with the gods. His limbs were surpassing. His nature was superior. Mari Utu, Mari Utu, the sun, the sun god, the sun god of the gods. He was clothed with the aura of the ten gods. So exalted was his strength. 
the fifty dreads were loaded upon him. Anu formed and gave birth to the four winds. He delivered them to him. My son, let them whirl. He formed dust and set a hurricane to drive it. He made a wave to bring consternation on Tiamat. Tiamat was confounded. Day and night she was frantic. The gods took no rest. They, in their minds, they plotted evil and addressed their mother, Tiamat. When Apsu, your spouse, was killed, you did not go at his side, but sat quietly. The four dreadful winds have been fashioned to throw you into confusion, and we cannot sleep. You gave no thought to Apsu, your spouse, nor to Mumu, who is a prisoner. Now you sit alone. Henceforth you will be in frantic consternation, and as for us who cannot rest, you do not love us. Consider our burden. Our eyes are hollow. Break the immovable yoke that we may sleep. Make battle. Avenge them. Reduce to nothingness. Tiamat heard. The speech pleased her. She said, let us make demons as you have advised. The gods assembled within her. They conceived evil against the gods, their begetters. They and took the side of Tiamat. Fiercely plotting, unresting by night and day, lusting for battle, raging, storming, they set up a host to bring about conflict. Mother Huber, who forms everything, supplied irresistible weapons and gave birth to giant serpents. They had sharp teeth. They were merciless. With poison instead of blood, she filled their bodies. She clothed the fearful monsters with dread. She loaded them with an aura and made them godlike. She said, let their onlooker feebly perish. May they constantly leap forward and never retire. She created the Hydra, the dragon, the hairy hero, the great demon, the savage dog, and the scorpion man, fierce demons, the scorpion fish man. and the bull man. Carriers of merciless weapons, fearless in the face of battle. Her commands were tremendous, not to be resisted. Although she made eleven of that kind, among the gods, her sons, whom she constituted her host, she exalted Chinghu and magnified him among them. The leadership of the army, the direction of the host, the bearing of weapons, campaigning, the mobilization of conflict, the chief executive power of battle, supreme command. She entrusted to him and set him on a throne. I have cast the spell for you and exalted you in the host of the gods. I have delivered to you the rule of all the gods. You are indeed exalted, my spouse. You are renowned. Let your commands prevail over all the Anunnaki. She gave him the Tablet of Destinies and fastened it to his breast, saying, Your order may not be changed. Let the utterance of your mouth be firm. After Chingu was elevated and had acquired the power of Anu-ship, he decreed the destinies for the gods, her sons. May the utterance of your mouths subdue the fire god. May your poison, by its accumulation, put down aggression. Tablet 2. 
Tiamat gathered together her creation and organized battle against the gods, her offspring. Henceforth Tiamat plotted evil because of Apsu. It became known to Ea that she had arranged the conflict. Ea heard this matter. He lapsed into silence in his chamber and sat motionless. After he had reflected and his anger had subsided, he directed his steps to Anshar, his father. He entered the presence of the father of his begetter, Anshar, and related to him all of Tiamat's plotting. My father, Tiamat, our mother, has conceived a hatred for us. She has established a host in her savage fury. All the gods have turned to her. Even those you begat also take her side. They and took the side of Tiamat, fiercely plotting, unresting by night and day, lusting for battle, raging, storming. They set up a host to bring about conflict. Mother Huber, who forms everything, supplied irresistible weapons and gave birth to giant serpents. They had sharp teeth. They were merciless. With poison instead of blood, she filled their bodies. She clothed the fearful monsters with dread. She loaded them with an aura and made them godlike. She said, let their onlooker feebly perish. May they constantly leap forward and never retire. She created the Hydra, the dragon, the hairy hero, the great demon, the savage dog, and the scorpion man, fierce savage demons, the fish the man, and man. the bull man, carriers of merciless weapons, fearless in the face of battle. Her commands were tremendous, not to be resisted. Although she made eleven of that kind, among the gods her sons whom she constituted her host, she exalted Chingu and magnified him among them. The leadership of the army, the direction of the host, the bearing of weapons, campaigning, the mobilization of conflict, the chief executive power of battle, supreme command, she entrusted to him and set him on a throne. I have cast the spell for you and exalted you in the host of the gods. I have delivered to you the rule of all the gods. You are indeed exalted, my spouse. You are renowned. Let your commands prevail over all the Anunnaki. She gave him the tablet of destinies and fastened it to his breast, saying, Your order may not be changed. Let the utterance of your mouth be firm. After Chingu was elevated and had acquired the power of Anuship, he decreed the destinies for the gods, her sons. May the utterance of your mouth subdue the fire god. May your poison by its accumulation put down aggression. Anshar heard. The matter was profoundly disturbing. He cried, Woe, and bit his lip. His heart was in fury. His mind could not be calmed. Over Ea, his son, his cry was faltering. My son! You who provoked the war. Take responsibility for whatever you alone have done. You set out and killed Afsu. And as for Tiam, whom you made furious, where is her equal? The gatherer of counsel, the learned prince, the creator of wisdom, the god Nugimu, with soothing words and calming utterance, gently answered his father Anshar. My father, deep mind who decrees destiny, who has the power to bring into being and destroy, Anshar, deep mind, who decrees destiny, who has the power to bring into being and to destroy, 
I want to say something to you. Calm down for me for a moment and consider that I performed a helpful deed. Before I killed Apsu, who could have seen the present situation? Before I quickly made an end of him, what were the circumstances were I to destroy him? Anshar heard. The words pleased him. His heart relaxed to speak to Ea. My son, your deeds are fitting for a god. You are capable of a fierce, unequaled blow. Ea, your deeds are fitting for a god. You are capable of a fierce, unequaled blow. Go before Tiamat and appease her attack, her fury with your incantation. He heard the speech of Anshar, his father. He took the road to her, proceeded on the route to her. He went. He perceived the tricks of Tiamat. He stopped, fell silent, and turned back. He entered the presence of Anshar, the father who begat him, penitently addressing him. My father, Tiamat's deeds are too much for me. I perceived her planning, but my incantation was not equal to it. Her strength is mighty. She is full of dread. She is altogether very strong. No one can go against her. Her very loud noise does not diminish. I became afraid of her cry and turned back. My father, do not lose hope. Send another person against her. Though a woman's strength is very great, it is not equal to a man's. Disband her cohorts. Break up her plans before she lays her hands on us. Anshar lapsed into silence, staring at the ground. He nodded to Ea, shaking his head. The Igigi and all the Anunnaki had assembled. They sat in tight-lipped silence. No god would go to face, would go out against Tiamat. Yet the Lord Anshar, the father of the great gods, was angry in his heart and did not summon anyone. A mighty son, the avenger of his father, he who hastens to war, the warrior Marduk. Ea summoned him to his private chamber to explain to him his plans. Marduk, give counsel. Listen to your father. You are my son who gives me pleasure. Go reverently before Anshar. Speak, take your stand. Appease him with your glance. Baal rejoiced at his father's words. He drew near and stood in the presence of Anshar. Anshar saw him, his heart filled with satisfaction. He kissed his lips and removed his fear. My father, do not hold your peace, but speak forth. I will go and fulfill your desires. Anshar, do not hold your peace, but speak forth. I will go and fulfill your desires. Which man has drawn up his battle array against you? And will Tiamat, who is a woman, attack you with her weapons? My father, beget her. Rejoice and be glad. Soon you will tread on the neck of Tiamat. Anshar, beget her. Rejoice and be glad. Soon you will tread on the neck of Tiamat. Go, my son, conversant with all knowledge. Appease Tiamat with your pure spell. Drive the storm chariot without delay. And with a which cannot be repelled, turn her back.
Baal rejoiced at his father's words. With glad heart he addressed his father. Lord of the gods, destiny of the great gods, if I should become your avenger, if I should bind Tiamat and preserve you, convene an assembly and proclaim for me an exalted destiny. Sit, all of you, in Upshuk Kenaku with gladness, and let me, with my utterance, decree destinies instead of you. Whatever I instigate must not be changed, nor may my command be nullified or altered. Tablet 3 Anshar opened his mouth and addressed Kaka to Vizier. Vizier Kaka, who gratifies my pleasure, I will send you to Lakmu and Laamu. You are skilled in making inquiry, learned in address. Have the gods my fathers brought to my presence. Let all the gods be brought. Let them confer as they sit at table. Let them eat grain. Let them drink ale. Let them decree the destiny from Marduk. Go, be gone, Kaka. Stand before them and repeat to them all that I tell you. Anshar, your son, has beer. sent me, and I am to explain his plans. Like I sent Anu, but he could not face her. Nudimus took fright and retired. Marduk, the has come forward. They like he beer. has determined to meet Tiamat. He has spoken to me and said... Decree your destiny for him without delay, that he may go and face your powerful enemy. Kaka went. He directed his steps to Lachmu and Lahamu, the gods his fathers. He prostrated himself. He kissed the ground before them. He got up, saying to them he stood. When Lachaha and Lahamu heard, they cried aloud. All the Igiji moaned in distress. What has gone wrong? That she took this decision about us. We did not know what Tiamat was doing. All the great gods who decreed destinies gathered as they went. They entered the presence of Anshar and they became filled with joy. They kissed one another as they, in the assembly, they conferred as they sat at table. They ate grain. They drank ale. They strained the sweet liquor through their straws. As they drank beer and felt good, they became quite carefree. Their mood was merry, and they decreed the fate for Marduk, their avenger. Tablet 4. They set a lordly dais for him, and he took his seat before his fathers to receive kingship. They said, You are the most honored among the great gods. Your destiny is unequaled. Your command is like Anu's. Marduk, you are the most honored among the great gods. Your destiny is unequaled. Your command is like Anu's. Henceforth your order will not be annulled. It is in your power to exalt and abase. Your utterance is sure. Your command cannot be rebelled against. None of the gods will transgress the line you draw. Shrines for all the gods needs provisioning, that you may be established where their sanctuaries are. You are Marduk, our avenger. We have given you kingship over the sum of the whole universe. Take your seat in the assembly. Let your word be exalted. Let your weapons not miss the mark, but may they slay your enemies. 
Baal, spare him who trusts in you, but destroy the God who set his mind on evil. They set a constellation in the middle and addressed Marduk, their son. Your destiny, Baal, is superior to that of all the gods. Command and bring about annihilation and recreation. Let the constellation disappear at your utterance. With a second command, let the constellation reappear. He gave the command, and the constellation disappeared. With a second command, the constellation came into being again. When the gods his fathers saw the effect of his utterance, they rejoiced and offered congratulation. Marduk is the king. They addressed to him a mace, a throne, and a rod. They gave him an irresistible weapon that overwhelms the foe. They said, Go, cut Tiamat's throat, and let the winds bear up her blood to give the news. The gods, his fathers, decreed the destiny of Baal, and set him on the road, the way of prosperity and success. He fashioned a bow and made it his weapon. He set an arrow in place, put the bowstring on. He took up his club and held it in his right hand. His bow and quiver he hung at his side. He placed lightning before him, and filled his body with tongues of flame. He made a net to enmesh the entrails of Tiamat, and stationed the four winds that no part of her escape. The south wind, the north wind, the east wind, the west wind. He put beside his net winds given by his father, Anu. He fashioned the evil wind, the dust storm, Tempest, the fourfold wind, the sevenfold wind, the chaos spreading wind, the wind. He set out the seven winds that he had fashioned, and they took their stand behind him to harass Tiamat's entrails. Baal took up the storm flood, his great weapon. He rode the fearful chariot of the irresistible storm. Four steeds he yoked to it, and harnessed them to it, the destroyer, the merciless, the trampler, the fleet. Their lips were parted, their teeth bore venom. They were strangers to weariness, trained to sweep forward. At his right hand he stationed raging battle and strife. On the left, conflict that overwhelms a united battle array. He was clad in a tunic, a fearful coat of mail, and on his head... He wore an aura of terror. Baal proceeded and set out on his way. He set his face toward the raging Tiamat. In his lips he held a spell. He grasped a plant to counter poison in his hand. Thereupon they milled around him. The gods milled around him. The gods, his fathers, milled around him. The gods milled around him. Baal drew near, surveying the maw of Tiamat. He observed the tricks of Chingu, her spouse. As he looked, he lost his nerve. His determination went, and he faltered. His divine aides, who were marching at his side, saw the warrior, the foremost, and their vision became dim. Tiamat cast her spell without turning her neck. In her lips she held untruth and lies, in there they have assembled by you. 
Baal lifted up the storm flood, his great weapon, and with these words threw it at the raging Tiamat. Why are you aggressive and arrogant and strive to provoke battle? The younger generation have shouted, outraging their elders, but you, their mother, hold pity in contempt. Chingu you have named to be your spouse, and you have improperly appointed him to the rank of Anushib. Against Anshar, king of the gods, you have stirred up trouble, and against the gods, my fathers, your trouble is established. Deploy your troops, gird on your weapons, you and I will take our stand and do battle. When Tiamat heard this, she went insane and lost her reason. Tiamat cried aloud and fiercely. All her lower members trembled beneath her. She was reciting an incantation, kept reciting her spell while the battle gods were sharpening their weapons of war. Tiamat and Marduk, the sage of the gods, came together, joining in strife, drawing near to battle. Baal spread out his net and enmeshed her. He let loose the evil wind, the rear guard, in her face. Tiamat opened her mouth to swallow it. She let the evil wind in so that she could not close her lips. The fierce winds weighed down her belly. Her inwards were distended, and she opened her mouth wide. He let fly an arrow and pierced her belly. He tore open her entrails and slit her inwards. He bound her and extinguished her life. He threw down her corpse and stood on it. After he had killed Tiamat, the leader, her assembly dispersed, her host scattered. Her divine aides who went beside her in trembling and fear beat a retreat to save their lives. But they were completely surrounded, unable to escape. He bound them and broke their weapons, and they lay enmeshed, sitting in a snare, hiding in corners filled with grief, bearing his punishment held in a prison. The eleven creatures who were laden with fearfulness, the throng of devils who went as grooms at her right hand. He put ropes upon them and bound their arms. Together with their warfare, he trampled them beneath him. Now Chingu, who had risen to power among them, he bound and reckoned with the dead gods. He took from him the tablet of destinies, which was not properly his, sealed it with a seal, and fastened it to his own breast. After the warrior Marduk had bound and slain his enemies, had the arrogant enemy, had established victory for Anshar over all his foes, had fulfilled the desire of Nudimud, he strengthened his hold on the bound gods and returned to Tiamat, whom he had bound. Baal placed his feet on the lower parts of Tiamat and with his merciless club smashed her skull. He severed her arteries and let the north wind bear up her blood to give the news. His fathers saw it and were glad and exulted. They brought gifts and presents to him. Baal rested, surveying the corpse. In order to divide the lump by a clever scheme, he split her into two like a dried fish. One half of her he set up and stretched out as the heavens. He stretched the skin and appointed a watch, with the instruction not to let her waters escape. 
he crossed over the heavens, surveyed the celestial parts, and adjusted them to match the Apsu, Nudimid's abode. Ba'el measured the shape of the Apsu and set up Eshara, a replica of Eshgala. In Eshgala, Eshara which he had built, and the heavens, he settled in their shrines Anu and Leel and Ea. Tablet 5. He fashioned heavenly stations for the great gods and set up constellations, the patterns of the stars. He appointed the year, marked off divisions, and set up three stars each for the twelve months. After he had organized the year, he established the heavenly station of Neberu to fix the stars' intervals. That none should transgress or be slothful, he fixed the heavenly stations of Enlil and Ea with it. Gates he opened on both sides, and put strong bolts at the left and the right. He placed the heights of heaven in her Tiamat's belly. He created Nanar, and trusting to him the night. He appointed him as the jewel of the night to fix the days, and month by month without ceasing he elevated him with a crown, saying, Shine over the land at the beginning of the month, resplendent with horns to fix six days. On the seventh day the crown will be half size. On the fifteenth day, halfway through each month, stand in opposition. When Shamash sees you on the horizon, Diminish in the proper stages and shine backwards. On the twenty-ninth day, draw near to the path of Shamash. The thirtieth day, stand in conjunction and rival Shamash. I have the sign. Follow its track. Draw near. Give judgment. Shamash, constrain murder and violence. Me. At the end, let there be the twenty-ninth day. After he had the decrees, the organization of front, and he made the day. Let the year be equally at the new year. The year, let there be regularly the projecting bolt after he had the watches of night and day. The foam which Tiamat Marduk fashioned. He gathered it together and made it into clouds. The raging of the winds, violent rainstorms, the billowing of mist, the accumulation of her spittle. He appointed for himself and took them in his hand. He put her head in position and poured out. He opened the abyss, and it was sated with water. From her two eyes he let the Euphrates and Tigris flow. He blocked her nostrils, but left. He heaped up the distant mountains of her breasts. He bored wells to channel the springs. He twisted her tail and wove it into the Dormahu, the Apsu beneath his feet. He set up her crotch. It wedged up the heavens. Thus the half of her, he stretched out and made it firm as the earth. After he had finished his work inside Tiamat, he spread his net and let it right out. He surveyed the heavens and the earth, 
their bonds. After he had formulated his regulations and composed his decrees, he attached guide ropes and put them in Ea's hands. The tablet of destinies which Chingu had taken and carried, he took charge of it as a trophy and presented it to Anu. The of battle of which he had tied on or had put on his head, he brought before his fathers. Now the eleven creatures to which Tiamat had given birth, and he broke their weapons and bound them, the creatures, to his feet. He made images of them and stationed them at the gate of the Apsu, to be a sign, never to be forgotten. The gods saw it and were jubilantly happy. That is, Lachmu, Lahamu, and all his fathers. Anshar embraced him and published abroad his title, Victorious King. Anu, Enlil, and Ea gave him gifts. Mother Damkina, who bore him, hailed him. With a clean, festal robe she made his face shine. To Usmu, who held her present to give the news, he entrusted the vizierate of the Apsu and the care of the holy places. The Agigi assembled, and all did obeisance to him. Every one of the Anunnaki was kissing his feet. They all gathered to show their submission. They stood. They bowed down. Behold the king, his fathers, and took their fill of his beauty. Baal listened to their utterance, being girded with the dust of battle, anointing his body with cedar perfume. He clothed himself in his lordly robe with a crown of terror as a royal aura. He took up his club and held it in his right hand. He grasped in his left. He set his feet. He put upon the scepter of prosperity and success he hung at his side. After he had the aura, he adorned his sack, the apsu, with a fearful, was settled like, in his throne room, in his cella, every one of the gods, Lakmu and Lahamu, opened their mouths and addressed the Igigi gods. Previously, Marduk was our beloved son. Now he is your king. Heed his command. Next, they all spoke up together. His name is Lugal Dimaran Kia. Trust in him. When they had given kingship to Marduk, they addressed to him a benediction for prosperity and success. Henceforth, you are the caretaker of our shrine. Whatever you command, we will do. Marduk opened his mouth to speak and addressed the gods his fathers. Above the Apsu, the emerald abode, opposite Ashara, which I built for you, beneath the celestial parts whose floor I made firm, I will build a house to be my luxurious abode. Within it, I will establish its shrine. I will found my chamber and establish my kingship. When you come up from the Apsu to make a decision, this will be your resting place before the assembly. When you descend from heaven to make a decision, 
This will be your resting place before the assembly. I shall call its name Babylon, the homes of the great gods. Within it we will hold a festival. That will be the evening festival. The gods, his fathers, heard this speech of his. They said, With regard to all that your hands have made, who has your? With regard to the earth that your hands have made, who has your? In Babylon, as you have named it, put our resting place forever. Let them, our, bring regular offerings. Whoever our tasks which we, therein its toil, they rejoiced, the gods, he who knows them. He opened his mouth, showing them light, his speech, he made wide them, and the gods bowed down, speaking to him. They addressed Lugaldimer and Kia, their lord. Formerly, Lord, you were our beloved son. Now you are our king, he who preserved us, the aura of club and scepter. Let him conceive plans that we. Tablet 6 When Marduk heard the god's speech, he conceived a desire to accomplish clever things. He opened his mouth, addressing Ea. He counsels that which he has pondered in his heart. I will bring together blood to form bone. I will bring into being Lulu, whose name shall be man. I will create Lulu, man, on whom the toil of the gods will be laid, that they may rest. I will skillfully alter the organization of the gods, Though they are honored as one, they shall be divided into two. Ea answered as he addressed a word to him, expressing his comments on the resting of the gods. Let one brother of theirs be given up. Let him perish, that people may be fashioned. Let the great gods assemble, and let the guilty one be given up, that they may be confirmed. Marduk assembled the great gods. Using gracious direction as he gave his order, as he spoke, the gods heeded him. The king addressed a word to the Anunnaki. Your former oath was true indeed. Now, also, tell me the solemn truth. Who is the one who instigated warfare, who made Tiamat rebel, and set battle in motion? Let him who instigated warfare be given up, that I may lay his punishment on him, but you sit and rest. The Agigi, the great gods, answered him, that is, Lugaldimaran Kia, the counselor of the gods, the lord. Chingu is the one who instigated warfare, who made Tiamat rebel and set battle in motion. They bound him, holding him before Ea. They inflicted the penalty on him and severed his blood vessels. From his blood... He, Ea, created mankind, on whom he imposed the service of the gods, and set the gods free. After the wise Ea had created mankind, and had imposed the service of the gods upon them, that task is beyond comprehension. 
For Nudimud performed the creation with the skill of Marduk. King Marduk divided the gods, all the Anunnaki, into upper and lower groups. He assigned three hundred in the heavens to guard the decrees of Anunnaki and appointed them as a guard. Next he arranged the organization of the netherworld. In heaven and netherworld he stationed six hundred gods. After he had arranged all the decrees and had distributed incomes among the Anunnaki of heaven and netherworld, the Anunnaki the opened underworld. their mouths and addressed their lord Marduk. Three hundred above. Seeing you have established our freedom, what favor can we do for you? Let us make a shrine of great renown. Your chamber will be our resting place wherein Marduk divided the gods, all the Anunnaki into upper and lower groups. He assigned three hundred in the heavens to guard the decrees of Anu and appointed them as a guard. Next he arranged the organization of the netherworld. In heaven and netherworld, he stationed six hundred gods. After he had arranged all the decrees and had distributed incomes among the Anunnaki of heaven and netherworld, the Anunnaki opened their mouths and addressed their lord Marduk. Now, Lord, seeing you have established our freedom, what favor can we do for you? Let us make a shrine of great renown your chamber will be our resting place wherein we may place wherein we may repose let us erect a shrine to house a pedestal wherein we may repose when we finish the work When Marduk heard this, he beamed as brightly as the light of day. Build Babylon, the task you have sought. Let bricks for it be molded and raise the shrine. The Anunnaki wielded the pit. For one year they made the needed bricks. When the second year arrived, they raised the peak of Ephesus, a replica of the Apsu. They built the lofty temple tower of the Apsu. And for Anu and Leel and Ea, they established it as a dwelling. He sat in splendor before them, surveying its horns, which were level with the base of Eshar. After they had completed the work on Esagil, all the Anunnaki constructed their own shrines. Three hundred Ifiji of heaven and six hundred of the Apsu, all of them, had assembled. Baal seated the gods, his fathers, at the banquet, in the lofty shrine which they had built for his dwelling, saying, 
This is Babylon, your fixed dwelling. Take your pleasure here. Sit down in joy. The great God sat down. Earmuffs were set out, and they sat at the banquet. After they had enjoyed themselves inside, they held a service in awesome Essegil. The regulations and all the rules were confirmed. All the gods divided the stations of heaven and netherworld. The college of the fifty great gods took their seats. The seven gods of destiny were appointed to give decisions. Baal received his weapon, the bow, and laid it before them. His divine fathers saw the net which he had made. His fathers saw how skillfully wrought was the structure of the bow, as they praised what he had made. Anu lifted it up in the divine assembly. He kissed the bow, saying, It is my daughter. Thus he called the names of the bow. Longstick was the first. The second was, May it hit the mark. With the third name, Bowstar, he made it to shine in the sky. He fixed its heavenly position along with its divine brothers. After Anu had decreed the destiny of the bow, he set down a royal throne, a lofty one, even for a god. Anu set it there in the assembly of the gods, the great gods assembled. They exalted the destiny of Marduk and did obeisance. They invoked a curse on themselves and took an oath with water and oil, and put their hands to their throats. They granted him the right to exercise kingship over the gods. They confirmed him as lord of the gods of heaven and netherworld. Anshar gave him his exalted name, Asaluhi. At the mention of his name, let us show submission. When he speaks, let the gods heed him. Let his command be superior in upper and lower regions. May the sun, our avenger, be exalted. Let his lordship be superior, and himself 